Saddam Hussein produced and possessed chemical and biological weapons. Well, there is no question that we have evidence and information that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction, biological and chemical particularly. Simply stated, there is no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. Greetings, this is podcast number 32 of Blast the Right. I'm Jack Clark from TheRationalRadical.com, www.TheRationalRadical.com. Today we have one big, super interesting topic. Let's get right into it. A couple of podcasts ago, the one about the Coretta Scott King funeral, I mentioned that I really ought to do a segment about Martin Luther King's Beyond Vietnam speech and its relevance to the war on terrorism. Well, here is that segment. The official version of Dr. King's life is that he was a fighter for racial justice in America, and that's that. The reality is, in the last years of his ministry, Dr. King articulated a far broader vision encompassing an analysis and severe criticism of the role the United States plays in the world, politically, militarily, and economically. This vision was articulated most powerfully in Martin Luther King's Beyond Vietnam speech, which was delivered at Riverside Church in New York City on April 4, 1967. While Dr. King was speaking about Vietnam and other conflicts then current, his words resonate down to us today and apply to our own Vietnam, Iraq, as well as to the other conflicts and interventions being undertaken by our government today around the world. Dr. King's speech is so powerful no major figure speaks like this anymore. To me, it's fascinating to listen to and, at the same time, quite poignant. I hope you'll feel the same way as you hear Dr. King articulate his deeply held beliefs. Now, if you have the time, please read or listen to the entire speech. If you do so, Imagine he's speaking about the war against terrorism, especially insofar as it fails to address the root causes of most anti-American feeling abroad. You can find links to the text and audio of Dr. King's Riverside Church speech on my data resources page, which is linked to off my main podcast homepage. In this podcast segment, We'll listen to several excerpts which illustrate some of Dr. King's main themes. Above all else, Dr. King was both honest enough and courageous enough to call things by their rightful names. He does it again and again and again. Martin Luther King was able to look at the Vietnam War and see the broader picture and call what was happening there by its rightful name. For nine years following 1945, 
We denied the people of Vietnam the right of independence. For nine years, we vigorously supported the French in their abortive effort to recolonize Vietnam. Before the end of the war, we were meeting 80% of the French war costs. Even before the French were defeated at Dien Bien Phu, they began to despair of their reckless action, but we did not. We encouraged them with our huge financial and military supplies to continue the war even after they had lost the will. Soon we would be paying almost the full cost of this tragic attempt at recolonization. What's important here is that he uses the honest term, recolonization. How eerie! The Iraq war is a recolonization, with the two main occupiers being the former colonial power, the British, and the new bully on the block, us. How is Iraq recolonization? We're building permanent military bases in Iraq. We now control their major natural resource, oil. And most tellingly, the orders issued by Paul Bremer, who was the head of the Coalition Provisional Authority, opened up the Iraqi economy to exploitation by multinationals in a way few, if any, sovereign countries would ever permit. That's the essence of colonialism, extraction of wealth from the colony for the benefit of the mother country. I'll be doing a podcast segment on the Bremer Rules, the Bremer Orders, soon. Martin Luther King asked us to look at things from the viewpoint of those we were slaughtering. He concluded that, through their eyes, we were strange liberators indeed. They must see Americans as strange liberators. Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence in 1945 after a combined French and Japanese occupation and before the communist revolution in China. They were led by Ho Chi Minh. Even though they quoted the American Declaration of Independence in their own document of freedom, we refused to recognize them. Instead, we decided to support France in its reconquest of a farmer colony. Our government felt then that the Vietnamese people were not ready for independence. And we again fell victim to the deadly Western arrogance that has poisoned the international atmosphere for so long. With that tragic decision, we rejected a revolutionary government seeking self-determination, and a government that had been established not by China, for whom the Vietnamese have no great love, but by clearly indigenous forces that included some communists. For the peasants, this new government meant real land reform one of the most important needs in their lives. Similarly, the Iraqis must view us and the British as strange liberators. The British were their former colonial power, and we were the ones who helped Saddam gain power and supported Saddam, helped keep him in power for so many years. 
Is it not reasonable for them to suspect our present intentions? King pointed out that we make hollow our endlessly repeated call for democracy. After 1954, they watched us conspire with DM to prevent elections which could have surely brought Ho Chi Minh to power over the united Vietnam. And they realized they had been betrayed again. When we ask why they do not leap to negotiate, these things must be remembered. Here King correctly identified our modus operandi. If we don't like the expected or actual results of a democratic election, then the heck with democracy. We'll prevent an election like in Vietnam. Or we'll prop up dictators who themselves deny democratic elections, like Marcos in the Philippines, Mubarak in Egypt, King Faisal in Saudi Arabia. We'll use the CIA to overthrow those who are legitimately elected, like in Chile in 1973 when we overthrew Allende, and Haiti in 1991 when Papa Bush overthrew Jean-Claude Aristide, and again in 2004 when George W. overthrew Aristide a second time, and 2002 when we supported a coup against Chavez in Venezuela. Or, we'll organize a terrorist army to destabilize a duly elected government, like in Nicaragua in the 1980s. Or we'll funnel money to the side we want to win, like in Bolivia in our recent unsuccessful attempt to prevent the election of Evo Morales, who was still elected by a landslide. Of course, in many instances, we utilize a toxic mixture of these methods inside one country. In his Riverside Church speech, King widened his scope to consider not just what our enemy thought, but what the entire world itself thought of our Vietnam crusade. If we continue, there will be no doubt in my mind and in the mind of the world that we have no honorable intentions in Vietnam. If we do not stop our war against the people of Vietnam immediately, the world will be left with no other alternative than to see this as some horrible, clumsy, and deadly game we have decided to play. The world now demands a maturity of America that we may not be able to achieve. It demands that we admit that we have been wrong from the beginning of our adventure in Vietnam. By all anecdotal accounts and by all polls, the vast majority of the world opposed and still opposes our invasion and occupation of Iraq. They suspect our intentions in Iraq at least as much as they did in Vietnam. King demanded America admit it was wrong from the beginning in Vietnam. That demand was futile back then. And of course, with the Bushians in power now, it's even more futile to make such a demand in our present day. The world is correct to suspect our intentions. What is our overall role in the world? 
1957, a sensitive American official overseas said that it seemed to him that our nation was on the wrong side of a world revolution. During the past 10 years, we have seen emerge a pattern of suppression which has now justified the presence of U.S. military advisors in Venezuela, this need to maintain social stability for our investments accounts for the counter-revolutionary action of American forces in Guatemala. It tells why American helicopters are being used against guerrillas in Cambodia and why American napalm and Green Beret forces have already been active against rebels in Peru. King correctly saw Vietnam as part of a worldwide pattern of U.S. violence. Dr. King explicitly links racism, materialism, and militarism. It is with such activity in mind that the words of the late John F. Kennedy come back to haunt us. Five years ago, he said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. Increasingly by choice or by accident, this is the role our nation has taken, the role of those who make peaceful revolution impossible by refusing to give up the privileges and the pleasures that come from the immense profits of overseas investments. I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. The giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism. Have not these triplets aged and matured since Dr. King's day? And do not they still define us all too well? The following passage is truly shocking in its raw honesty. These are revolutionary times all over the globe. Men are revolting against old systems of exploitation and oppression. And out of the wounds of a frail world, new systems of justice and equality are being born. The shirtless and barefoot people of the land are rising up as never before. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. We in the West must support these revolutions. King's call for us to support these revolutions signed his death warrant. In our present day, can you imagine the Bushians supporting shirtless and barefoot anything? Dr. King was specific 
about how our extreme greed and desire to exploit were the reasons for all our violent democracy-suppressing interventions around the world. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation. It will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just. It will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of South America and say this is not just. The Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A U.S. civil rights leader speaking of Western economic exploitation of the third world? That's a no-no. That's why King was killed. Now, the changes Dr. King was talking about weren't about increasing our foreign aid charity. No! He's talking about changing the very nature of the system itself. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. Amazingly, this language of Dr. King, an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring, was echoed by Pope John Paul II 20 and 30 years later. Pope John Paul II wrote, quote, The poor are becoming ever more numerous, victims of specific policies and structures which are often unjust. It is a question not only of alleviating the most serious and urgent needs through individual actions here and there, but of uncovering the roots of evil and proposing initiatives to make social, political, and economic structures more just and fraternal. It is not out of place to speak of structures of sin. Sin and structures of sin are categories which are seldom applied to the situation of the contemporary world. However, one cannot easily gain a profound understanding of the reality that confronts us unless we give a name to the root of the evils which afflict us. Close quote. Structures of sin is a phrase Martin Luther King would readily have agreed with. And like Martin Luther King, Pope John Paul II wasn't afraid to give a name 
to call something by its rightful name. Dr. King knew what would happen if we didn't heed his words. With insightful prophecy, Dr. King predicts that our failure to change our ways will lead to countless further wars. The war in Vietnam is but a symptom of a far deeper malady within the American spirit. And if we ignore this sobering reality, and if we ignore this sobering reality, we will find ourselves organizing clergy and layman concerned committees for the next generation. They will be concerned about Guatemala and Peru. They will be concerned about Thailand and Cambodia. They will be concerned about Mozambique and South Africa. We will be marching for these and a dozen other names and attending rallies without end unless there is a significant and profound change in American life and policy. And King was correct. We did march for these and a dozen other names, and we did attend rallies without end. And we still have to. Besides the nations King mentioned, you could add Nicaragua, Chile, El Salvador, Iraq, Haiti, Venezuela, Bolivia. Dr. King was concerned not only about the third world poor, but our own soldiers, drawn disproportionately from the working class and poor. He spoke movingly about the brutalization of our own troops in Vietnam. I am as deeply concerned about our own troops there as anything else. For it occurs to me that what we are submitting them to in Vietnam is not simply the brutalizing process that goes on in any war where armies face each other and seek to destroy. We are adding cynicism to the process of death, for they must know after the short period there that none of the things we claim to be fighting for are really involved. Before long, they must know that their government has sent them into a struggle among Vietnamese, and the more sophisticated surely realize that we are on the side of the wealthy and the secure while we create a hell for the poor. Somehow this madness must cease. We must stop now. I speak as a child of God and brother to the suffering poor of Vietnam. I speak for those whose land is being laid waste, whose homes are being destroyed, whose culture is being subverted. I speak for the poor of America who are paying the double price of smashed hopes at home death and corruption in Vietnam. And again. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Holland. So we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony 
of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. And so we watch them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village, but we realize that they would hardly live on the same block in Chicago. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. Linking the struggle of the poor in Vietnam with the struggle of the poor in America, that's what truly terrified the powers that be. King had to die. Today, the same awakening of our troops has occurred in Iraq. As my last podcast's Quick Blast pointed out, 72% of U.S. forces in Iraq disagree with their mission and believe all U.S. troops should be withdrawn from that country within the next year. Dr. King wasn't afraid to give a dire warning to the American people. It was in this speech that King famously said, As I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government, for the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of the hundreds of thousands trembling under our violence, I cannot be silent. The greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. In another famous passage, King proclaimed, A true revolution of values will lay hand on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Dr. King knew that he was literally fighting for America's soul. Now it should be incandescently clear 
that no one who has any concern for the integrity and life of America today can ignore the present war. If America's soul becomes totally poisoned, part of the autopsy must read Vietnam. We could well say today, if America's soul becomes totally poisoned, part of the autopsy must read Iraq. Finally, King oh so perfectly defines our present-day right-wingers. We must find new ways to speak for peace in Vietnam and justice throughout the developing world, a world that borders on our doors. If we do not act, we shall surely be dragged down the long, dark, and shameful corridors of time reserved for those who possess power without compassion, might without morality, and strength without sight. Right-wingers are those who possess power without compassion, might without morality, and strength without sight. What more could I add to that? So now you've heard a good sampling of excerpts from Dr. Martin Luther King's Riverside Church speech. I certainly believe Dr. King would have supported our protecting ourselves against the Taliban, Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, and others who seek to do us harm. But he would certainly have objected to the methods chosen by the right-wingers, of launching a war against Afghanistan featuring brutal aerial bombardment which killed thousands of innocent Afghan civilians. Likewise, King would have objected with all his might to and been a powerful leading spokesperson against the Iraq war, which, he would certainly have pointed out, has nothing to do with any war on terrorism that we need to conduct and that has killed, depending on which estimates you use, between 30,000 and 150,000 Iraqi civilians. King would not have spoken in the wishy-washy way that so many Democrats now do. No, he would have spoken out in that patented Martin Luther King prophetic speak-truth-to-power way you just heard him use when speaking about Vietnam. And is there any doubt that Dr. King would also have insisted that we change ourselves and our foreign policy so that we don't continue to support the poverty and oppression that creates a global breeding ground for terrorism? Of course not. There's no doubt at all. What was the date Martin Luther King delivered his Beyond Vietnam speech? April 4th, 1967. It is not, many believe, a mere coincidence that precisely on that date one year later, Dr. King was assassinated. The powers that be could tolerate a preacher fighting for civil rights for African Americans, but the powers that be could not, I submit, 
allow as famous and powerful a figure as Martin Luther King Jr. to morally challenge U.S. dominion over the rest of the world. Indeed, to claim common ground between the struggles of African Americans in this country and those of oppressed peoples abroad. The parallels between the issues we face in these first years of the 21st century and the concerns raised by Dr. King in his speech 39 years ago are eerie. The absence in American public life of anyone with even a small iota of the vision and guts of Martin Luther King is nothing less than tragic. Let me just add, listening to Dr. King as I recorded this podcast has filled me with many emotions, some longing, some sadness, but also some inspiration and some hope. Would that another prophet rise up in our land? Would that he or she not be assassinated? And would that our nation finally pay heed to the prophetic call? Well, that'll about wrap it up for today. If you liked what you heard, please tell a friend about Blast the Right. On my podcast homepage, there are one-click sign-up links for iTunes, Yahoo, and email notification. Music credits. We opened with a bit of Catapult the Propaganda by Nise Music, N-I-S-E music.com. We'll end with exhortations from Howard Beale, the Peter Finch character in the film Network, and from the band Wackyavelli, which is at wackyavelli.com. If you're interested in learning more about current U.S. interventions in Haiti, Bolivia, and Venezuela, see my podcast number 22. Links to all the music I play on Blast the Right can be found on my music resources page. Links to all the data, statistics, and quotations I use can be found on my data resources page. Both of them are linked to from the main podcast homepage. I love to get all your comments. You can send email to rational at adelphia.net. You can also call in and leave a comment for me to play on the podcast. Dial 310-933-5891 and leave your message. You can also use Skype to contact me. My Skype name is Jack from Blast the Right. So, until next time, I'll sign off and say I love you all, including all you right-wing pieces of crap. I want you... To get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore.